Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, health sciences professor Dan Malik returns to take a look at those new StatsCan numbers on declining alcohol consumption. Education professor Louis Volante has five ways to change the way students are graded. And psychologist Dr. Simon Elterman looks at bringing primary care behavioral health to British Columbia. So let's get started. Imagine our surprise the other day when we were trolling through the headlines and this one popped out at us. Sales of beer, wine, by volume, see historic declines in Canada. StatsCan, this is brand new information from Statistics Canada. So we thought, my gosh, this is sort of uh, a flies in the face of what we've been hearing for the last couple of years with the pandemic and whatnot. So let's call Dan Malik again. It's a pleasure to welcome him back to Dr. Dan Malik is a health sciences professor at Brock University in Ontario. He's an internationally recognized expert in drug and alcohol regulation, and he's the author of Liquor and the Liberal State, Drink and Order Before Prohibition. Dr. Malik, Dan, good morning, sir, and welcome back. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for having me back. It's good to have you with us, Dan. Were you surprised by this uh, stats can revelation the other day showing a decline in alcohol? Even though there's more money uh, changing hands, Mm -hmm. the actual volume of alcohol sales is down. And this is at the tail end of a pandemic. Yeah, um, I I wasn't really surprised because um, although on a sort of a Overall basis, it's it it look it's a decline. There are some interesting patterns going on when you separate out by different types of drinks. Mm-hmm. So, for example, spirits has been pretty flat, which is not surprising. Uh, wine took a bit of a drop, but it's been on an increase until the pandemic. So, I think what we saw there was um, like things like uh, the fact that people weren't having as big events like weddings with as many people and stuff like that. Where yeah, good point. Right. And stuff like that. Right. But then what's really interesting is the, the relationship between beer and what the StatsCan calls cider coolers and other sorts of cocktails, like spirit cocktails, like mm-hmm. those cans of rum and coke and stuff like that, which has been taking a significant increase. And that's really kind of an interesting pattern there. And also it's, if I'm not mistaken, craft beer is rising in popularity versus the name brands, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't shown in the data that StatsCan has pushed out. And I've been talking to some craft beer people trying to get some numbers. We're not quite sure what happened because at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern that craft beer would take a real hit, right? Because things like brew pubs were being closed and a lot of craft beer companies sold a lot of draft. Um, but uh, it lo- but craft beer was up until the pandemic uh, taking an increasingly large share of beer uh, beer sales mm-hmm. and so when we look at and I was talking to some people from the industry we were trying to sort of sort this out because uh, we look at the, the beer sales that have been in decline since at least uh, 2000 I'm looking at maybe 2008. Um, and I'm just thinking I wonder if that's a relationship with the increase of craft craft beer, beer sure. Yeah, you know, where people are buying craft beer more, which has more alcohol in it often, um, and kind of self-regulating. So you're not having like three or four or five bottles of a four to five percent lager. You might have a couple cans of something stronger and then go, whoa, that's enough. <laughs> you know, but we just don't see what's happening within this data because it's not like selected out enough. It, so then people can see it and go, oh, beer, beer sales are going down, which, which is true. It's beer sales by volume and by, by alcohol, absolute alcohol amounts 
are going down. Now, we uh, just a few minutes before your appearance with us this morning, Dan, in the news break, uh, we ran several ads. And here's a portion of one of the ads that we ran literally a couple of minutes ago. On April the 1st, Ottawa plans to raise the tax on beer by another 6%. What do Canadians think? Whoever came up with this idea gets no back bacon, eh? Good day, I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother Doug. How's it going, eh? Why don't you tax some other stuff, eh? Like yams, confetti, or liver, eh? I hate liver. Leave beer alone, eh? Take a hike, Ottawa. We drink responsibly. So tax responsibly. We don't like it, eh? So there's an old roommate of mine, Dan. I used to oh, yeah? share, share some space with Rick Moranis back in our early radio days oh. in Toronto and his buddy Dave Thomas. Yes, the McKenzie yeah. brothers have been <laughs> reignited to, to, uh, to, to protest the beer tax. That's yeah. not going to help beer sales, is it? And that's coming up pretty fast. Not at all, no. And, and what's interesting is we, I mean, this is a, a tax that's indexed to inflation. It's something that people tend not to pay attention to when inflation is low. But this year, um, obviously, people are already being really affected by inflationary prices, right? And the problem with beer tax is that, well, there's two problems in my view. One is that it, it really hits people with lower incomes harder because they don't have a lot of flexibility in their budget. Sure. But the other thing is it's something that a lot of people just don't pay attention to because um, you know, it seems that beer seems just like a luxury, right? So, you know, yeah, and a lot of people make this jump to the assumption that alcohol is a problem anyway, so why not tax it higher, right? And yet, as Bob and Doug note, and as many of us know, it's also something that is very much part of our culture. Yes. And, so, and, and so we don't necessarily have to, like, we don't, we don't connect those dots. So, so that's, I think, that's an ad from, like, the beer uh, or the alcohol uh, manufacturers organization or something like that. Right? Mm-hmm, definitely. You and I spoke months ago, and at yeah. that time, our concern was on individual consumption based on yeah. pandemic stats that we were looking at and uh, basically um, talking about how uh, the on, on a personal individual level, there, was, or there were indicators that in some areas, consumption was up. But then, of course, yeah. what the big picture didn't reveal and what we didn't talk a lot about then, and I'm glad to have you back now because you've already touched on it what we were missing during the pandemic were those gatherings dan you talked yeah. about weddings yeah. for example and conventions and parties and uh, uh, awards nights pick a pick a topic and uh, yeah, yeah. generally speaking alcohol flows fairly freely at those events and there were none yeah you're right there were none and the other um element of that is that we have this uh this idea that um the, the stats when when we saw stats can stats is saying twenty percent of Canadians increase their alcohol consumption. Um, it didn't mention that twenty. I think it was twenty two percent increased and twenty one percent decreased. Mm. But the focus was on this increase, right? So so that and that is again goes to what I was talking about earlier, where we tend to see it as a problem, so we focus on that problem, and when we dismiss like oh alcohol taxes, well that's going to just cause social better social situation but it does um, inequitably affect people like people with less money indeed Um, but what's also interesting i know i know we're probably running out of time but what's also interesting in the stats is that i was looking at some of the um the the per capita consumption numbers like how much people drink uh per week uh, based upon these stats and canadians actually are fairly moderate in our drinking um we tend per capita it's per capita so that includes like all all people above a certain age, right. but 
uh, it's like under 10 drinks a week is what Canadians generally on average drink, which is lower than the earlier guidelines. We talked also about those new guidelines. That's right, we did. Um, those recommended guidelines, mm-hmm. okay, they're not official. Um, it's, er, it's lower than those, regu- those earlier guidelines. So we're not exactly the most drunken, <laughs> boisterous uh, country in the world by far, like by any measure, Sure, but we have this perception that we are, yeah. right, that, that we drink so much. And Stascan yeah. also revealed some interesting generational differences. Apparently, yeah. younger Canadians, Dr. Malik, are drinking yeah. less than yeah. older Canadians. That seems to be a reverse. Yeah, well, yeah, and this is a generational change, right? So younger Canadians are different people than you know, younger Canadians 20 years ago. You know what I mean? So, sure. so like Gen Z seems to be drinking less, although I was reading some stuff today that said Gen Z is, really likes red wine. <laughs> um, but um, they're drinking less. So what we're seeing in some ways is the older generations. We're, we're not sure if this is older generations drinking less or older generations no longer being with us, right? So mm. the heavier drinking generations are you know, getting older and, you know, what happens. Um, so... Um, so that could also be explaining some of this pattern of decline is that there's a younger a, a younger generation entering the, the drinking age that aren't drinking as much. And final question to you, Dan, and it's great to have you back. Uh, we talked about the beer tax coming in and uh, on April 1st. In fact, it's the excise tax on alcohol. Yeah. It'll apply to more than just beer. Uh, it's a sin tax, the old tobacco and, and alcohol stuff. It's still the, that's where governments go when they need a little extra loot. And this government spent a lot and they need more than a little extra loot. <laughs> so um, uh, is, is that expect, would you expect then, based on that uh, impending tax hike, to see the numbers? taper off even more they could do yeah um i mean it's it's a it's a significant the the prime minister's office has said look it's only a three quarters of a cent on a bottle of beer but people don't tend to buy single bottles of beer True. right um and beer is a lower priced item than think of wine and spirits so it will be a bit of a hit however some people are saying that the industry will absorb it because they're already under sort of have stretched a bit. So if they absorb that, they won't lose the customers. Uh, So it may not be an effect on individual consumers, Um, but definitely, and because it's an automatic tax, it's indexed to inflation. It's easy to say, well, you know, if inflation weren't so high, you know, whatever, but it's one of those moments where the government could say, let's just suspend this for a year because we know Canadians are already, um, uh, hit with this now. If this was an automatic tax on bread or vegetables, that would probably have already happened. Right. But because it's a tax on alcohol, it's not the thing that has that kind of, I don't know, say moral imperative around it. Mm. Right. People can say, oh well, then just don't drink as much. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and good luck with that one with summer coming on. <laughs> really, Dan, a pleasure to have you back, Dan. Always a treat to have a few moments to have a conversation and get get in underneath the numbers and see what's really going on. Thanks for getting up early on a Saturday and joining us again. No worries, it's absolutely my pleasure. It is important to note that ChatGPT is an AI language model and does not have the ability to intentionally plagiarize or engage in unethical behavior. Ah, such a warm intro to our next guest. Louis Vellante is a professor of education, governance, and policy analysis at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, and co-author of a terrific piece at theconversation.com entitled Chat GPT and Cheating, Five Ways to Change How Students Are Graded. Professor Vellante, Louis, good morning and welcome, sir. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. That was uh, uh, an uh, AI-generated response. Our producer, Phil Figueredo, uh, went to ChatGPT and asked it the question, how do you deal with plagiarism? And the answer went on for a minute. That was the last 10 seconds about be, uh, not being uh, indulging in unethical behavior. But you and your co-authors are, are looking at ChatGPT uh, not as much as a threat, which it definitely is, but also as an opportunity. So square that circle for us, Louis. How did you get there? Yeah, I mean, um, we really got there because we started from the simple premise that it's going to be impossible to actually catch every instance when a student's actually using ChatGPT to generate an essay. So if we take that starting point, then the logical conclusion to that would be, okay, well, if students are using it, um, how are we going to address this? Frontally, like how are we directly going to uh, confront this threat to academic integrity? Mm-hmm. Um, so my colleagues, Don Klinger and Chris DeLuca and I, we sort of generated a couple of suggestions for how we can reform assessment within higher education systems, also in high school as well, mm-hmm. uh, which we actually think are long overdue. I think some of these changes should have happened a long time ago, but ChatGPT is essentially provided the impetus and to move this along quicker. Well, I'll tell you, Louis, one of the things that came up in the piece, you quote an expert named Sarah Elaine Eaton, uh, who goes, and you go on to say that this person has estimated that at Canadian universities, 70,000 students buy cheating services every year. So overdue is a pretty good adjective to put uh, next to all of this, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, she's talking about contract cheating. So for the viewers, they're already, um, what that really means is they're already buying an essay that's done from some sort of party, and they're submitting it. Um, And, um, you know, this happened way before ChatGPT even came onto the landscape. And what professors have been using to sort of catch that sort of thing is turn it in. But it's not 100% successful like anything else. There's going to be people that um, obviously submit those types of essays and and they might not be caught. Right. So, um, you know, this issue around, you know, academic integrity, it's something that we need to address directly within uh, universities and also in, in schools as well. Right. We had uh, um, um, the last conversation we had on this uh, topic. Professor Volante was with a, a chap from uh, Dalhousie. Uh, he was one of the deans uh, basically in charge of discipline. <laughs> and of course, that would include uh, plagiarism and all sorts of unethical student behavior. Uh, and again, just talking about the degree of that, uh, of, uh, that this challenge represents to those who are responsible for academic integrity. And it's huge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I actually had a PhD student a few years ago do her thesis, her PhD thesis, looking at plagiarism in uh, university settings. And so for the listeners out there, the vast, vast, vast majority of cases when a student needs to be disciplined, it's not because they overtly did it on purpose. It's often quite subtle, right? They might not have paraphrased something. So it becomes an instructional sort of exercise. The issue around contract cheating, that's cut and dry. There's no gray area there. Sure. But I, I don't want I don't want the lead, uh, listeners to think that, you know, we have a huge percentage of students out there that are, you know, using these nefarious sort of 
uh, opportunities to cheat the system. That's just not that's just not correct. And yet you have to absorb that fact into going forward. So now you and your colleagues have turned this around and are looking at five ways to change how students are graded. Don't have all the time in the world, Louis, but let's whistle through that five point list, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even really need to go through all five. I mean, the most important thing is that we need to basically create the conditions where students are less likely to draw on AI in order to generate an essay. And one way of doing that is to get rid of this tried and true traditional one and done essay assignment that's often given to large first and second year courses where students, you know, particularly in the social sciences and the humanities, they're, you know, they're given a preset topic or they pick a topic amongst the list and they hand in their essay. One way of going about doing this differently is having students submit in particular particular portions of their assignment. So in my graduate course, I readily admit, is a small number of students. They have to give me an outline. I uh, take a look at the suggested citations that they're going to use, the structure of the essay, and I give them feedback. That is less susceptible to what we're talking about today, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess the other thing I want to make clear, it's a really key point I want the listeners to understand, is that when students do use things like ChatGPT, at least the current research that exists, and it's coming out all the time because this is a new challenge, it doesn't generate, the student isn't really using that type of uh, application and getting an A+. They're often getting a B- minus. Or something quite, uh, or something lower. Mm-hmm. So you know, if if we actually provide assessments that really tackle higher order thinking skills, um, ChatGPT isn't really going to do a great job in that domain. So we we really want to emphasize that in schools, and we also want to change the structure of our more traditional assessment approaches that are susceptible to things like ChatGPT being used nefariously or uh, contract cheating services. Are you optimistic that these changes can occur? Um, well, if I'm being brutally honest, no. And, and the reason why I'm saying that is because we're dealing with such large numbers of students in the first and second year courses right. that, you know, it's very costly to do what we're recommending. There is a cost to it, right? It's a lot easier to rely on traditional assessment approaches within these large first year courses than it is to, say, um, break down an assignment into two or three portions, because that would mean that that single assignment has to be marked two times instead of one time, right? And when you're dealing with class sizes of three, four, five hundred, it's difficult to do. And Canadians uh, might not be aware of this, but we're the first country in the world to go to universal access, which means more than 50% plus one of our students go on to post-secondary we're number one in the world for in this area in terms of post-secondary attendance and have been so for about 15 years now. We've been in this category. So we have large numbers of students. And that's something that we need to wrap our head around in terms of how do we deal with such large first and second year class sizes and change our assessment in such a way where we can be more reliable, valid, and also tackle those sort of higher-order thinking skills that are so valuable. 
Interesting stuff. It's a great article, and, and I commend it to our, our listeners this morning, Louis. You and your colleagues, Christopher DeLuca and Don Klinger, have written ChatGPT and Cheating, Five Ways to Change How Students Are Graded. It's a good read. It's available at theconversation.com. Uh, principal author, Professor Louis Volante from Brock University. Thanks for this, Louis. Great to have you on the show. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a great day. We saw this in the Vancouver Sun a couple of days ago on the op-ed page. Quote, a doctor's office should be a one-stop shop for all of your health care needs. British Columbians should demand and expect the same level of care in their mental and behavioral health treatment as they can expect for their physical care. This is an opinion piece written by three British Columbia doctors, one of whom is our next guest. Dr. Simon Elterman is a registered psychologist here in B.C. and co author of this piece that has us taking a look at something called primary care behavioral health. Dr. Elterman, good morning and welcome. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you with us, Simon. What is primary care behavioral health? It's a new concept here, but it's uh, it's a big deal in other parts of the world. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So here in BC, we don't really have it. Um, There have been a couple of pilot projects, but in the rest of the world, the standard of care is to take care of the whole person. So primary care behavioral health really looks at what are the things that we do, what are the ways that we think, and how can we manage things such as diet, sleep, and exercise, things like um, substance use, smoking, all those kinds of things that affect health, and how do we help doctors uh, where they are, and how do we find patients where they're going, right? Because where people go is their primary care doctor whenever anything comes up. Right. So, you know, what happens, though, when you go to your primary care physician, if indeed, Simon, you're lucky enough to have one, and that's a whole other topic for conversation, but let's assume you do, and and then you find Mm -hmm. out from your physician that you want to talk about a couple of things, and the doc says, look, by according to the rules, I'm actually really only supposed to talk to you about one issue per visit. That's the antithesis of primary care behavioral health, isn't it? It is. Well, and the thing is, if they have time for one thing, most things that come into primary care have some sort of psychosocial component. So how amazing would it be if the doctor could say, you know, it does sound like there's something that could use help from a psychologist or a behavioral health clinician. Hey, I have one just down the hall. I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to head over to my next appointment right. and I'm going to be able to see people in order. And what that actually does is it decreases wait times, right? Because doctors can spend a little bit of time and if they need to hand it off to a psychologist or behavioral health consultant, they can do that. And by going to the next person, they're able to save time, free up their schedule and see more people. So it would require, though, a cultural change at the top, wouldn't it, Dr. Elterman? Because if the current regime is that it's it's really one issue per visit, please, because you've only got 15 minutes and you really need to just deal with the primary issue uh, at the moment. If that's the directive that's currently at play, there's a massive cultural change going to be required here. I I don't think it's going to be huge with with the physicians, right? Because everywhere that this model is in place, the physicians love it, right? They're really quick to to take it on because it really helps out their practice. Sure. Um, When it it comes to culture change, I mean, British Columbia has the chance to be really leaders in Canada, right? Right now in in Nova Scotia, they recently approved um, psychologists to be a part of MSP, but they're having a problem with it. So our proposal... Uh, that we have in government, it's called the Primary Care Psychologist or the PC Psych Proposal, um, lets us be the leaders and it lets us be contracted um, outside of MSP 
so that we can be able to help people both within our health authority and by telehealth. So the cultural shift isn't going to happen uh, among the doctors. It's going to be among the people who create the healthcare policy, which is the government. I agree with you completely because there, I think the whole matter of not being able to discuss a more holistic approach to your health uh, per visit and instead limiting the conversation to whatever is bothering you the most, most physicians would welcome an opportunity to, to widen a conversation beyond that, wouldn't they? Uh, you know, and... It's more than just my, uh, you know, anecdotal experience. I have worked in primary care for the last few years, but we have tons of research that says that physicians love it, nurses love it, um, you know, all of the admin love it, and um, we have that data. And, you know, the thing is, it, it really doesn't take a lot to be able to come in and and say, you know, this is something that can not be a burden, right? Because that's the worry when we talk to doctors is they say, we don't want another form to fill out. We don't want another kind of piece of admin. Right. But really what physicians find is that it really makes their jobs a lot easier. And that's what we want. And you talk about this scenario, you and your co-authors talk about this whole primary care behavioral health concept, brand new to British Columbia, is already a reality in places like Australia, New, New Zealand, the UK, thousands of health centers across the United States. It is a thing. It's established. There's lots of successful data to point towards. So, again, the pointing has to be done at the policymaking level, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, in my mind, I might be a little bit biased, but I think the data is undeniable. I'm a kind of data person. You know, you even look a couple of hours to the south in Washington, and they between, I think they have set in um, Community Health of Central Washington, they have 17 providers, and they saw tens of thousands of people, right? And so we could help a ton of people, and they saved their healthcare system money. Just in 2022 alone, they saved their one kind of a small group of, of healthcare centers in central Washington, uh, almost a million dollars, right? So um, the idea that it's going to cost us a lot, that's the main uh, issue that comes up with the government is that, you know, we're worried about the cost, right? Mm, sure. And, you know, in, in almost in 90 to 95% of all healthcare organizations that utilize this model around the world, they find cost savings, right? And when we look at beyond the cost savings in terms of dollar amounts, if we're to go back in time and look at, all the things that British Columbians go through, whether it's overdose or mental health or addiction, right? Even if we take out the, the cost that it's going to save um, taxpayers money, is it really worth the, the, the cost, right? Is it worth it not to do this? Right. When you look at all the things that are happening in British Columbia and all the people that we could help. And you take a look, too, at the, some changing trends. Uh, the new majority council in the city of Vancouver got elected because they said they were going to, among many other things, uh, they were going to integrate social workers with police officers to deal with the situations that police officers are ill-trained to handle. Uh, but that's an extra cost. Taxes are going up as a result of it, perhaps. But they got voted voted in with a majority because that's what they said they wanted to do. So clearly it is doable at the municipal level. And if, if so, uh, the provincial level should be uh, also equally uh, accomplishable. Wouldn't you think? Totally. And, and, you know, the thing is the, the, the province came out with their budget um, a couple of days ago and they, they put in a huge amount of money into uh, mental health and addiction and yes. all this kind of stuff. And, and we love to see it, right? They're really putting forth the best effort and what they're doing is they're putting in a lot more beds. They're doing a lot more complex care. And what we're saying is, you know, we want to help people before this becomes an issue, right? We want to help people when the issue is first presenting itself, when people go to primary care, rather than when they are 
in what we call tertiary care, right? When they need the most amount of treatment. So what we're saying is, you know, you can kind of spread it out, right? You can have um, this tertiary care, you know, the redfish model is fantastic, but we also want to help the people who don't have these really uh, complex, significant problems. We want, you know, if your kid has issue with anxiety in school, right, because you just moved from another province to be able to talk to someone right away at your family doctor's because that's where we know people are going. If you're having issues because you're feeling a little bit sad, you know, you want to, or if you're having issues with kind of alcohol use behind the scenes, right. we want to be able to help you right when it happens rather than downstream when we need to have a bed for you in, in a place like Redfish. Indeed. So, so I, I agree. It, I think the provincial government definitely has their heart in the right place. They really care and they really show that they care. And when we have met with them, they say, this is a really great idea, but we need to be able to help the people who really need it, but we also need to help the people before it becomes a big problem. Indeed. And like I said before, we have the chance to do that. Excellent. Dr. Elterman, thanks for this. Appreciate your giving us an opportunity to understand a little bit more about what primary care behavioral health is. Let's hope it happens soon in British Columbia. Thanks for this this morning, Simon. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.